0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life, by C.S. Lewis Chapter 11, Check Part 1 Epigraph When Bale is at highest, Boot is at next Sir Aldengar The history of joy, since it came riding back to me on huge waves of Wagnerian music and Norse and Celtic mythology several chapters ago, must now be brought up to date. I have already hinted how my first delight in Valhalla and Valkyries began to turn itself imperceptibly into a scholar's interest in them. I got about as far as a boy who knew no old Germanic language could get. I could have faced a pretty stiff examination in my subject. I would have laughed at popular bunglers who confused the late mythological sagas with the classic sagas, or the prose with the verse Edda, or, even, more scandalously, Edda with Saga. I knew my way about the Eddaic cosmos, could locate each of the roots of the ash, and knew who ran up and down it, and only very gradually did I realize that all this was something quite different from the original joy. And I went on adding detail to detail progressing towards the moment when I should know most and should at least enjoy. Finally, I woke from building the temple to find that the God had flown. Of course, I did not put it that way. I would have said simply that I didn't get the old thrill. I was in the words worthy in predicament, lamenting that a glory had passed away. Thence arose the fatal determination to recover the old thrill. And at last the moment when I was compelled to realize that all such efforts were failures. I had no lure to which the bird would come, and now notice my blindness. At that very moment there arose the memory of a place and time at which I had tasted the lost joy with unusual fullness. It had been a particular hill walk on a morning of white mist. The other volumes of the ring, the Rheingold and the Valkyrie, had just arrived as a Christmas present from my father, and the thought of all the reading before me, "'mixed with the coldness and loneliness of the hillside, "'the drops of moisture on every branch "'and the distant murmur of the concealed town, "'had produced a longing, yet it was also fruition, "'which had flowed over from the mind "'and seemed to involve the whole body. "'That walk I now remembered. "'It seemed to me that I had tasted heaven then. "'If only such a moment could return, "'but what I never realized was that it had returned.' that the remembering of that walk was itself a new experience of just the same kind. True, it was desire, not possession. But then what I had felt on the walk had also been desire, and only possession in far as that kind of desire is itself desirable, is the fullest possession we can know on earth. Or rather, because the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. there to have is to want, and to want is to have. Thus, the very moment when I longed to be so stabbed again was itself again such a stabbing. The desirable, which had once alighted on Valhalla, was now alighting on a particular moment of my own past, and I would not recognize him there because, being an idolater and a formalist, I insisted that he ought to appear in the temple I had built him, not knowing that he cares only for temple's building and not at all for temples built. Wordsworth, I believe, made this mistake all his life. I am sure that all that sense of the loss of vanished vision, which fills the prelude, was itself vision of the same kind, if only he could have believed it. In my scheme of thought, it is not blasphemous to compare the error which I was making with that error which the angel at the sepulcher rebuked when he said to the women, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The comparison is, of course, between something of infinite moment and something very small, like comparison between the sun and the sun's reflection in a dewdrop. Indeed, in my view, very like it. For I do not think the resemblance between the Christian and the merely imaginative experience is accidental. I think that all things, in their way, reflect heavenly truth, The imagination, not least. Reflect is the important word. The lower life of the imagination is not a beginning of, nor a step towards, the higher life of the spirit, merely an image. In me, at any rate, it contained no element either of belief or of ethics. However far pursued, it would never have made me either wiser or better. But it still had, at however many removes, the shape of the reality it reflected. If nothing else suggests this resemblance, it is at least suggested by the fact that we can make exactly the same mistakes on both levels. You will remember how, as a schoolboy, I had destroyed my religious life by a vicious subjectivism which made realizations the aim of prayer, turning away from God to seek states of mind, and trying to produce those states of mind by maestry. With unbelievable folly, I now proceeded to make exactly the same blunder in my imaginative life, or rather the same pair of blunders. The first was made at the very moment when I formulated the complaint that the old thrill was becoming rarer and rarer. For by that complaint I smuggled in the assumption that what I wanted was a thrill, a state of my own mind, and there lies the deadly error. Only when your whole attention and desire are fixed on something else, whether a distant mountain, or the past, or the gods of Asgard, does the thrill arise. It is a by-product. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. If by any perverse ascesis or the use of any drug it could be produced from within, it would at once be seen to be of no value. For take away the object and what, after all, would be left. A whirl of images, a fluttering sensation in the diaphragm, a momentary abstraction and who could want that? This, I say, is the first and deadly error, which appears on every level of life and is equally deadly on all, turning religion into a self-caressing luxury, and love into auto-eroticism. And the second error is, having thus falsely made a state of mind your aim, to attempt to produce it. From the fading of the northernness, I ought to have drawn the conclusion that the object, the desirable, was further away, more external, less subjective, than even such a comparatively public and external thing as a system of mythology, had, in fact, only shown through that system. Instead, I concluded that it was a mood or state within myself which might turn up in any context. To get it again became my constant endeavor. While reading every poem, hearing every piece of music, going for every walk, I stood anxious sentinel at my own mind to watch, whether the blessed moment was beginning, and to endeavor to retain it if it did. Because I was still young, and the whole world of beauty was opening before me, my own officious obstructions were often swept aside, and, startled into self-forgetfulness, I again tasted joy. But far more often I frightened it away by my greedy impatience to snare it, and even when it came, instantly destroyed it by introspection." and at all times vulgarized it by my false assumption about its nature. One thing, however, I learned, which has since saved me from many popular confusions of mind, I came to know by experience that it is not a disguise of sexual desire. Those who think that if adolescents were all provided with suitable mistresses, we should soon hear no more of immortal longings, are certainly wrong. I learned this mistake to be a mistake by the simple, if discreditable, process of repeatedly making it. From the northernness one could not easily have slid into erotic fantasies without noticing the difference. But when the world of Morris became the frequent medium of joy, this transition became possible. It was quite easy to think that one desired those forests for the sake of their female inhabitants, the garden of Hesperus for the sake of his daughters, Hylas's river for the river nymphs. I repeatedly followed that path to the end, and at the end one found pleasure, which immediately resulted in the discovery that pleasure, whether that pleasure or any other, was not what you had been looking for. No moral question was involved. I was at this time as nearly non-moral on that subject as a human creature can be. The frustration did not consist in finding a lower pleasure instead of a higher. It was the irrelevance of the conclusion that marred it. The hounds had changed scent. One had caught the wrong quarry. You might as well offer a mutton chop to a man who is dying of thirst, as offer sexual pleasure to the desire I am speaking of. I did not recoil from the erotic conclusion with chaste horror, exclaiming, Not that! My feelings could rather have been expressed in the words, Quite. I see. But haven't we wondered from the real point? Joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. Such, then, was the state of my imaginative life. Over against it stood the life of my intellect. The two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real I thought grim and meaningless. The exceptions were certain people, whom I loved and believed to be real, and nature herself, that is, nature as she appeared to the senses. I chewed endlessly on the problem. How can it be so beautiful, and also so cruel, wasteful, and futile? Hence, at this time, I could almost have said with Santayana, all that is good is imaginary, all that is real is evil. In one sense, nothing less like a flight from reality could be conceived. I was so far from wishful thinking that I hardly thought anything true unless it contradicted my wishes. Hardly, but not quite. For there was one way in which the world, as Kirk's rationalism taught me to see it, gratified my wishes. It might be grim and deadly, but at least it was free from the Christian God. Some people, not all, will find it hard to understand why this seemed to me such an overwhelming advantage. But you must take into account both my history and my temperament. The period of faith which I had lived through at Oldies had contained a good deal of fear. And by now, looking back on that fear, and egged on by Shaw and Voltaire and Lucretius with his Tantum Religio, I greatly exaggerated that element in my memory, and forgot the many other elements which had been combined with it. At all costs, I was anxious that that those full moonlit nights in the dormitory should never come again. I was also, as you may remember, one whose negative demands were more violent than his positive, far more eager to escape pain than to achieve happiness, and feeling it something of an outrage that I had been created without my own permission. To such a craven, the materialist's universe had the enormous attraction that it offered you limited liabilities. No strictly infinite disaster could overtake you in it. Death ended all. And if ever finite disasters proved greater than one wished to bear, suicide would always be possible. The horror of the Christian universe was that it had no door marked exit. It was also perhaps not unimportant that the externals of Christianity made no appeal to my sense of beauty. Oriental imagery and style largely repelled me. And for the rest... Christianity was mainly associated for me with ugly architecture, ugly music, and bad poetry. Wyvern Priory and Milton's verse were almost the only points at which Christianity and beauty had overlapped in my experience. But, of course, what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul—nay, there least of all—which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted— Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. In this respect, and this only at first, I may have been guilty of wishful thinking. Almost certainly I was. The materialist conception would not have seemed so immensely probable to me if it had not favored at least one of my wishes but the difficulty of explaining even a boy's thought entirely in terms of his wishes is that on such large questions as these, he always has wishes on both sides. Any conception of reality which a sane mind can admit must favor some of its wishes and frustrate others. The materialistic universe had one great negative attraction to offer me. It had no other, and this had to be accepted. One had to look out on a meaningless dance of atoms, remember, I was reading Lucretius, to realize that all the apparent beauty was a subjective phosphorescence, and to relegate everything one valued to the world of Mirage. That price I tried loyally to pay. For I had learned something from Kirk about the honor of the intellect, and the shame of voluntary inconsistency. And, of course, I exulted with youthful and vulgar pride in what I thought my enlightenment. In argument with Arthur, I was a very swashbuckler, most of it, as I see now, was incredibly crude and silly. I was in that state of mind in which a boy thinks it extremely telling to call God Yahweh and Jesus Yeshua. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.